Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. When you take on a story that begins with some skepticism, like, why should I read this? I don't live in Cuba, and I've never seen an ox in my life, and I don't really care about farming. That's a risky undertaking. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. You probably know Susan Orlean as a longtime staff writer for The New Yorker. She's also the author of a ton of books. She wrote the book The Orchid Thief, which was turned into the movie Adaptation. She's written the library book Animalish, a book about Rin Tin Tin. The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup, which is a collection of her New Yorker profiles. And my personal favorite, a cookbook written by her dog as told to Susan. Her new book is On Animals, which collects a bunch of essays of hers from over the years about what turns out to be 
maybe her favorite subject. She writes about owning chickens, about two oxen who live in Cuba. She writes a profile of the whale who played Willie in Free Willie and the various attempts to, you know, set him free after the movie was over. And uh, there's also an absolutely hysterical profile of a prize show dog named Biff Truesdale. The thing about Susan's writing that I really admire is that it all sounds like her. She has one of those personalities on the page that you can kind of spot right away. It's a great example of what young writers seem to be looking for when they talk about wanting to find their voice. So it felt fitting that she came on the show to talk about the assignment many years ago when she realized that she could put herself, her experiences, and her voice into her writing, that she could and should try to write as Susan and not to match some abstract notion of what a writer should sound like. Here's Susan Orley. Years ago, when I was writing a story for The New Yorker, <clears throat> excuse me, um, about a supermarket, I, I became very interested in the, the kind of day-to-day -day life of a supermarket, a neighborhood su supermarket, and, and what it might reveal to us about the neighborhood, about um, people's habits. It, it just fascinated me. When I sit, sat down with all my notes after spending about six weeks in the supermarket, I, I became kind of frozen. And I thought, how, how am I going to tell this story? It seemed like it was a million disparate scenes and pieces and bits of information that didn't have any coherent through line and I I just sat there thinking what have I done what why am I doing this story it it, it has no order or purpose I I don't know what I'm doing and I thought for a, a, a while it felt like eons it may have just been a shorter amount of time and it suddenly occurred to me that if I told the story with including myself as an observer, that I could link all of these pieces together. That acknowledging my presence in the reporting actually provided this perfect rational organization for the story. And it was a revelation. It was something that changed that story and frankly changed all my work going forward. But it wasn't merely like figuring out a technique for writing as much as it was a, a kind of moment of thinking that transparency and authenticity is always the answer. That writing this piece being kind of transparent about the fact that I was the observer liberated me completely, answered the question completely. And, and while it sounds simple, I think it's something as a writer, I really had to, I had to earn my way to that revelation. And, and then from that point forward, it seemed to me like, well, that's really the answer in almost every situation that 
that feels stuck and confusing, that the, the breakthrough is the moment when you peel aside some of the expectations you have, some of the pre-existing ideas that you've got about what something should be, and you just do the authentic thing. I feel like it was really kind of transforming for me to have that revelation. And it certainly changed my work. That's for sure. What do you think had been um, the obstacle to that previously, you know, before the grocery store piece? What had been kind of in the way of you realizing that, do you think? I think that um, we all do what we do with a an unexpressed hidden voice telling us what that thing ought to be. That the way to do something correctly, and certainly this is very true with writing, that there's a way you're supposed to write. And that you do your reporting and you sit down to write and you think of what writing ought to be and ought to sound like. So you you have this inner voice full of expectation that you're responding to. It's not that easy to say, well, that inner voice may be well and good, but actually that that doesn't help me <laughs> to simply think, what is it that I feel is expected of, of this process, but rather what was, what was this process actually all about? Well, it was really all about me observing this grocery store and talking to people and interacting with people. I mean, this sounds so simple, doesn't it? I mean, it seems so obvious, but when when you have in your mind a template of how writing is supposed to be, that's a very powerful thing. And it's not that easy to say, hmm, I'm going to put that aside and just really write the story that I saw. That's not, it's both the most natural thing in the world. And also it's not that easy to do when you've got decades of, of being told or, or having the expectation of what a piece of writing is supposed to sound like. There was a, a stance that I was, that I felt was the quote, correct stance um, of a somewhat more distant observational voice that had the formality of traditional journalism. Well, I'm, I don't do traditional journalism and writing a story about a grocery store is not a particularly traditional story. It was um, really grew out of my interest in observing this and bringing my, my own perceptions to it. So it really involved kind of shrugging off a, a a kind of um, outer layer of expectation of what this is the proper way to do this and embracing instead what felt like the real 
experience that I had. Were you happy with how the grocery store piece came out? I was thrilled. You know, <laughs> it was such a, a, I mean, it really was a breakthrough for me where I, so much of it didn't show on the page. So much of it really was in my own mind, a sense of confidence about how to write that I hadn't fully embraced at that point. And so would a reader have read it and thought, wow, she's really doing something different here? I'm not sure. Um, but for me, it felt dramatic. It felt like I was onto something new. And so it was really exhilarating. Was it that you had this sense of yourself that already, of course, you were familiar with because you are yourself and you just felt permission to put that on the page? Or did you feel like there was an almost a new or evolving persona of Susan arriving in the work? A little bit of both. I, I think that I had um, a fairly good self-knowledge at that point, but this expanded my set first of all my sense of confidence that that I could rely on my instincts in a way that I never had before but also I thought you know the bottom line is I'm a curious person and I like learning about things that catch my attention and that that is who I am. I'm not an expert in anything. I'm not I'm not interested really in in mastering one particular subject. I'm much more interested in following curiosity and and then bringing readers with me in exploring those curiosities. And each thing I'm curious about to me resonates with more meaning. They're not just random, odd bits and pieces. They're things that I think have greater meaning. But the justification suddenly made more sense to me. I thought, I'm, I'm a person with a very active sense of curiosity. That's why I'm a writer. And I can lean into that thoroughly and say, that's what I bring to it. That's, that's who I am. And I should sort of enjoy that. And rather than try to come up with another rationale for what I'm doing. So I think it, it did bring some self-knowledge as well as simply um, confirming to me that I had kind of mental permission to to really be who I am in in the course of writing. 
That's such an interesting distinction you're making between somebody who is a writer and is there because they're a writer and they're curious versus somebody who's there as an expert in something. I feel like very often writers are asked, what do you write about or what's your beat or what's your expertise or what kind of thing do you do? Um, which can be a very tough question for generalists or for people who write kind of based on where their curiosity is taking them at any given time. Have you felt over the, you know, over your career pressure to be bringing expertise other than the kinds of expertise that you bring as a, as a, you know, seasoned and, and gifted magazine, right. You know, writer and essayist and reporter. Absolutely. Um, I used to think feeling sorry for myself, I think, you know, I'm never going to get hired for a job because there is no job that I am clearly qualified for. I mean, if somebody is looking for someone to cover uh, the restaurant world or politics or crime, you know, I've done a little bit of all of these, but nobody would think, oh, let's, let's, reach out and see if we can hire Susan to be our new, you know, um, crime writer. I, I, I mean, it was something where I thought to myself, no, there is no job that I am qualified for in that traditional sense. So no editor ever pressured me. I mean, my very first writing job, my editor insisted that we all cover a beat before we just go off and follow our own interests. And I thought, oh, I don't want to cover a beat. But he just felt that it was a good exercise for anybody to really narrow their focus and try to dig in and, and get to know one subject very well. So I felt like, all right, well, if those are the rules here. I guess I'll give in. And the beat he assigned me to was county government. And it was like, what could be more <laughs> deadly than county government? This was, you know, admittedly a long time ago. And my editor's interests were very much in sort of political, the political direction. But county government is, it's almost like... <laughs> You couldn't come up with a duller topic. And I began writing stories that the only connection it had to the county government was that it had taken place in the county. And my editor finally gave up on me and said, all right, never mind. Just do, do the stories you want to do. I, you know, I'm not, I can't make you cover this beat. It's, it's just not going to work. But um, no other editor ever really pressed me specifically and said, you know, you need to know your stuff and you need to know one topic really well, because I so immediately established myself as somebody who ranged far and wide. And even when I had jobs that nominally were about a particular topic. Like I had a column for a couple of years in the Boston Phoenix that was supposedly an arts column. My feeling was that anything is arts. 
you know, that didn't feel like a limitation to me. So some of the columns I wrote were actually about arts and a lot of them were just about whatever I happened to find interesting. And in, in my mind, they all fit in the same rubric as being kind of in the world of arts. Someone else might have said that's insane. These are not in any way on the subject of art, but I, I felt comfortable doing that. And nobody ever came to me and said, Susan, you have to be writing more about art. I think I've had a lot of experiences with editors who've just sort of thrown up their hands and said, all right, all right, just do what you want and just make it good. But um, we give up on trying to keep you within these boundaries. How do you feel like you make up for, or do you make up for the fact that you're often then coming kind of new to a situation? One of the things that you, I don't know, one of the boons maybe of having a subject area expertise is that you're not starting from scratch in terms of your knowledge every time. And one of the, I don't know, to me, one of the great pleasures of starting from scratch is that you're getting to learn a bunch of things you want to know about, but do you, do you feel compelled to like, to, um, I don't know, to do tons and tons of research. So you're coming in as if you, as if you might, you know, have known about this for a little longer than you do, or do you like to come in really, really fresh? I, 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 have two kind of responses. Number one, I love coming in fresh, although in the beginning, it often means that I have to swallow my pride and ask a lot of dumb and obvious questions of people who are very expert, you know, who might be shocked by how little I know. But to me, that's part of the story, which is learning the subject. It means that every story is much more demanding because I come, I'm writing a story about orcas. I don't know anything about orcas. I have to do a lot of quick research so that at least I'm conversant in the subject. But to me, the great advantage is then for the readers, I am their perfect proxy. I I am learning the subject the way my readers will learn the subject through me and that we are kind of going through it together. One of the problems when you become very expert in something is it's very hard to connect with readers who come to the subject unfamiliar with it. So you're either writing way above them and presuming knowledge that they don't have, or it can become very didactic and and preachy and um, with a tone of some sort of um, condescension because you know so much and you feel like your readers know so little. Going into a story as I do really new makes me kind of inhabit the same space as the reader does, which is, what is this story about? Uh, First of all, give me some background. Help me learn enough that I can understand what you're talking about, but also show me how the subject revealed itself. It's easier to do that if, if the 
writer is going through that <laughs> along with the reader. I think that's why um, some readers follow me into subjects that they don't think they have any existing interest in. And I've had so many people say that to me about different things I've written where they've said, boy, I never thought I'd be interested in reading about orchids. Or I had somebody say to me yesterday, oh, I heard you were doing a book about libraries. And I thought, oh, how boring. And I thought, yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I mean, when I began it, I thought, oh, this could be pretty boring. And instead, it turned out to be genuinely gripping. So I, I feel like readers, in some instances, have come to trust me because they know that I'm saying, hey, I didn't know if this would be interesting either, but wow, it turned out to be really interesting. How do you think about whether a story is going to hold your curiosity and a reader's curiosity all the way through? Because I imagine that some of these start like good ideas and then maybe seem, you, you wind up abandoning them. So how do you tell the difference between one that's really going to worth sticking with and one that maybe not so much? That's a great question. And it, it is a critical fact because if you enter a story that doesn't adhere to the usual kind of format of what makes a good story, it it's a big gamble. Um, you, you know, it's a lot safer to do a celebrity profile than to write a story about a couple of oxen in Cuba. You have a built-in audience. There are people want to read about celebrities, for better or worse. And and also People innately feel like, okay, this is a story about a celebrity because celebrities are interesting, whether they are or not. We, we just have a, a kind of universal idea that famous people, rich people, um, beautiful people are worth writing about. When you take on a story that begins with some skepticism, like, why should I read this? I don't live in Cuba, and I've never seen an ox in my life, and I don't really care about farming. That's a risky undertaking. I generally have a thousand misgivings about every single story I've ever done where I first hear the idea and I'm really excited and think, oh my God, this is the best idea that anyone has ever had ever. And this is urgent. This, I have to do it. This is fantastic. Inevitably, then there's a, a, a second wave of emotion where I think, what is this even about? No one's going to care. Is this really a good idea? Maybe this is a terrible idea. and. There are plenty of times where I don't get past that misgiving and I lose my nerve. I lose the conviction that it's a good idea. 
And the minute you lose that conviction, it's really hard to go forward because these stories rely 100% on my enthusiasm for the subject. They, they simply can't go forward without me saying, oh my God, I want to learn about this. So if at any point I lose my nerve and think, eh, it's too obscure, too marginal, whatever reason might pop up in my head, um, I can't continue. Now, I don't discard a million ideas, but they do have to pass through that circle of fire before I'm really committed. And, you know, many times I will even go to my editor and say, I don't know, I'm beginning to doubt. And I've sometimes had my editors say, no, 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 I think it's, you know, and they've sort of pulled me back from the brink and said, no, you were so excited about it. You seemed so interested in it. And I think, oh, well, yeah. Um, I guess I was interested in it. And you know, I get over some of it is performance anxiety. Some of it is genuine. Um, and I think healthy skepticism. Is this going to work? as a story. Is there enough here? Am I genuinely <clears throat> interested enough to make this work and to carry readers along with me? Knowing, as I do almost every time, that the story is going to depend an awful lot on my execution of the story. You don't go into a story about oxen in Cuba with a built-in audience. It's just, you know, maybe a few people who have oxen, but it's not as if there are a million people who think, oh, I've been dying to read a story about oxen or about orcas or, you know, any any of these subjects. They're, you know, and I did ton, tons of celebrity profiles when I first um, began my career. And you don't ever go into a profile of Tom Hanks doubting yourself. You just think, well, <clears throat> people are interested in Tom Hanks. I, all I have to do is do a good job. I don't have to sell the story to the readers. How do I know that it's going to work? For me, it's purely a gut feeling that my interest is deep enough and infectious enough that I will be able to convey that to readers. So really there's no kind of focus group where I think, well, you know, to go back to the oxen story, you know, a lot of people are interested in Cuba and lots of people are interested in animals. I mean, I don't, I don't plot it out on a spreadsheet and think, okay, this is, this suggests a pre-existing interest that I can tap into. I just go with my gut where I think, you know what? I think this is genuinely interesting. And my job is to explain to you why I think it's so interesting. It's not the easiest way to be a writer. Um, believe me, it puts <laughs> a lot of pressure on me. But I feel like I don't know another way to be. Thank you.
it sounds like what you're describing and this I mean this resonates with the grocery store story you were talking about before it sounds like what you're talking about is like learning to have confidence in your own sensibility and your own curiosity and to trust that a reader will will care about it will not just care about the thing but will care will will be able to use your curiosity as a vector to caring about whatever it is you want them to look at oh exactly you know we've all sat at a dinner party where someone who is a very charismatic person will say, let me tell you about my trip to the DMV to renew my driver's license. And, you know, one part of your brain is going, oh my God, I can't imagine a more boring subject. But the person has a twinkle in their eye and they're saying it's an amazing story and they have a wonderful way of drawing you into the story and giving you details that you had never noticed before about the DMV or the process. And lo and behold, 20 minutes later, you're still listening and you're engaged and, and enthralled. I think we all love the experience of engagement. Everybody does. What could be more wonderful? And usually we take our chances on something where it's pretty much a guarantee. And to go back to the example of celebrity profiles, if you if someone says to you, I can I'm gonna profile the guy at the corner who has an auto repair shop, and you think, oh my well, that sounds boring. Versus I'm gonna profile Tom Cruise, where you think, oh Tom Cruise, you know, I kinda like Mission Impossible. I'm sort of curious about him. You know, that that skeptical position on the unknown subject is a very natural one. And we all have limited amounts of time and a limited um, appetite for risk. And so generally we migrate to the thing that's the guarantee. You know, if you read a profile of Tom Cruise, there will be a certain satisfaction quotient. On the other hand, I think if somehow you could convey to that same person that the story about the guy with the auto repair shop is really funny and interesting and weird and surprising, they would love to read it. They'd dive into it. But, you know, the first glance is not very promising. And so you have to do everything you can to give, ask people to give you just a minute to explain to them why this story that seems like a low cost-benefit ratio is really worth their time. And it has to come from the reader, rather from the writer's kind of burning desire to tell the story. and. And I think readers respond to that. I think readers like when a writer says, this is amazing. I know it's not a subject you thought you would care about, but seriously, it's a great story and you're going to really enjoy it. And again, to go back to what I said previously, I, I 
take great pleasure in people saying to me, boy, I never thought I'd read a book about orchids. I didn't write The Orchid Thief for people who have a hundred orchids in their house. I mean, I knew they would read it anyway because they're going to read anything with the word orchid in the title. I was really writing it for everyone else, and, and that included me, who did not know that people were so obsessed with these plants and who couldn't have imagined the length that people would go to to acquire them. I was that person. And when people have said to me, boy, I never thought I'd read a book about orchids, my response always was, I never thought I'd write a book about orchids. I didn't even <laughs> like orchids. I mean, I, in fact, part of the reason that I was curious was my lack of interest in orchids was so profound that when I heard that someone had stolen orchids out of a protected area, I thought, why would anyone do that? That, I don't get it. I don't even like orchids. And you can buy them at Trader Joe's. I mean, what's the big deal? Why would you steal them? So I went into it as that skeptical reader thinking, you know, maybe I'd rather be reading about Tom Cruise. And then lo and behold, it's like, what? This is the craziest story I've ever heard. Right. I think that makes so much sense. You going in as the skeptic, as the skeptic, thinking like, who could, who, who could care about this? Or like, what, you know, what is this? This sounds weird and, and arcane, um, is probably really helpful in terms of making you the proxy for the reader who then can also become a little obsessed or fall a little in love in the way that you do. Um, what you've been saying, like brought me, like brought us so beautifully to a question that I wanted to ask you about your first lines. I have noticed that this, this collection on animals is like a masterclass in beautiful first lines and in really unusual and intriguing first lines. Um, forgive me, I'm going to, I'm going to read two of them. This one was lifelike. As soon as the 2003 World Taxidermy Championships opened, the heads came rolling in the door. Or from the It Bird, if I had never seen Janet Bonney reenact the mouth-to-beak resuscitation of her hen number seven, who had been frozen solid in a snowstorm, then was thawed and nursed back to life, being hand-fed and massaged as she watched doctor shows on TV, I might never have become a chicken person. Um, I just love these. I love the first line so much. And I'm, I'm imagining based on what you've been talking about, that you put a lot of thought into your leads because you have only sort of a limited window of time in which to get a possibly skeptical reader on board with this thing that they don't think that they care about. Um, and I wanted to ask you how you, how you work on the first line, how you work on your openings. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, I'm chuckling as I'm hearing you read these because sometimes I think, where did that come from? But I, um, and I absolutely spend an in, a, a disproportionate amount of time on my leads because, you know, whenever I pull up the channel guide on my television, and I start flipping through channels and I, I see exactly how much time I give something before I move on. We do that with reading. 
uh, there's a limited amount of time that most of us give to a story, particularly a story on a subject that we don't come to with a pre-existing curiosity. That amount of time is could be measured in seconds, perhaps. So my feeling is either I get you to stick with me a little bit, or there's no hope. <laughs> there, there's, there's no way that I'm going to bring you into the story with me where I get to explain to you why this is genuinely interesting if I can't get you to at least give me that minute. So the leads become very important. And I realized some time ago, and this was another liberating revelation and something of a threshold as well, was I think when you um, are trained as a journalist, even if you're not a newspaper journalist, you do feel that you are obligated in the first sentence or two to give the who, what, where, when, why of a story. And yet it dawned on me at some point, and this was certainly part of the influence of being at the New Yorker and seeing some of the great writers there and examining their work. It dawned on me that you don't have to do that. You have to write something intriguing and you have to write something that is connected to the story, but people are not reading the lead to get a synopsis of the story. And a synopsis is often very difficult to pull off. And even if you can write a good synopsis, then your entire story is simply repeating that synopsis, but expanding on it, which doesn't feel very satisfying as a, as a narrative art. You feel as a reader, you want to earn some of what you learn in the course of the story. It was a real breakthrough for me to think, oh, I don't need to give people a shrunken version of the story. I need to give them some inkling, some tidbit that makes them say, oh, what? Hmm. What is this about? Let me read the second sentence. Oh, now, now maybe I know a little bit more. And now the third sentence. In fact, I'd rather, as a reader, enter a story somewhat obliquely and kind of sideways walk into the subject rather than being hit over the head with a two by four. This is a story about blank. I think it's much more fun as a reading experience to find yourself growing into the story and discovering the story more as it, as it unfolds. So the lead is fantastically important to me. It's your first best chance to get a reader and also to establish some sense of tone for the story uh, that, that kind of gives a, an opening chord to the musical quality of the story. And if, if all goes well, you have someone hooked by the time they 
get through the lead and begin moving into the body of the story. It certainly isn't foolproof, but I don't, I rarely read a story where the lead is flabby and boring. And there's just too much to read in the world, too many things to listen to and watch. And you, you read something and it doesn't catch your curiosity. I don't think you're going to stay with it unless it's, um, you know, your tax return and you have to read it. Curiosity keeps coming up in this conversation, which is really, uh, I mean, kind of, I, I love the idea that that can be such a guide, a guiding light for a whole career as, and such a, you know, um, such a, a bright and successful career that it can be led by being very tuned into your own curiosity and thinking very carefully about how curiosity is captured in other people. Curiosity, you know, we think of it as so ordinary, but it's really not. It's really rather magical. And we all get somewhat lazy as we settle into our lives uh, about being curious because the familiar is so soothing and comfortable and it's just easier to surround yourself with things you know and, and learning about things you don't know takes a little more effort and there's a little more of a risk involved. Maybe you won't like it. Um, we don't, we tend to begin shying away from those gambles. I think as, as we get older and we feel like, you know, I like what I like. I know what I know. If I go to this restaurant, I'm always going to order this dish. Um, this is, it's just comfortable. It feels good. And I do it too. I absolutely understand it. Reawakening or simply reasserting the quality of curiosity, I believe, is a way to really enrich your life. What are you curious about right now? I'm actually writing a memoir. So for the first time in my life, I have to turn my curiosity to myself. And that's a challenge that um, I'm finding quite intriguing and a lot harder than I imagined. To me, being curious about things outside of me has come so naturally that turning that around and being curious about myself has been a lot harder than I expected. And feeling confident that people are might be interested, I'm finding a real challenge and I'm having to talk myself into it much more than writing about orchids or libraries or animals. I I'm regularly saying to myself, why would anyone care about my life? And then my other alter ego is saying, no, no, you've had an interesting life and people will be interested in reading about it. So I'm actually in the midst of this struggle right now with my own story, which I think maybe is the perfect um, 
perfect experience for someone like me to say, all right, convince yourself that you're a good story. It'll probably feel like a relief to go back to to something, some 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 other or more oxen. Yeah. More, more oxen. oxen. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.